Welcome to the Idaho Debates. Tonight, a look at the candidates for U.S. Senate. The Idaho Debates is organized by these partners. Funding provided by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, the Idaho Public Television Endowment, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hello and welcome to the Idaho Debates at the Idaho Public Television Studios in Boise. This is one of four debates we're hosting before the November 8th general election. Today, the candidates for U.S. Senate take the stage to ask for your vote. The winner of this election will represent Idaho in the United States Senate for six years as one of two U.S. Senators for the state. I want to welcome the candidates, incumbent Senator Mike Crapo and challengers David Roth and Scott Cleveland. Scott Cleveland owns an investment and brokerage firm in Eagle. Prior to that, he was the managing partner of the Boise office of New York Life. He was previously the treasurer for the Eagle Kiwanis Club and Eagle Chamber of Commerce. Mike Crapo is seeking his fifth term in the U.S. Senate. He previously served as representative for Idaho's 2nd Congressional District for three terms and in the Idaho State Senate for four terms. David Roth serves as the executive director of the Bonneville Youth Development Council and is on the board for Habitat for Humanity in Idaho Falls and the Idaho Falls Soup Kitchen. I also want to introduce our panel of reporters who will ask the candidates questions today. Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press, Margaret Carmel of BoiseDev.com, and Clark Corbin of the Idaho Capital Sun. I'm Melissa Davlin, host of Idaho Reports here on Idaho Public Television. I'm moderating today's debate. Helping us keep time is Bridget Gibson, volunteer timekeeper from the League of Women Voters Education Fund. Each candidate will be given 90 seconds for opening comments and 60 seconds for close. Candidates also have 90 seconds to answer questions and 60 seconds for rebuttals. I'll allow some back and forth if I think the conversation is productive and educational for voters while trying to make sure each candidate gets about equal time. We drew numbers to see who would go first and Mr. Cleveland, you have that honor. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Idaho Public Television for hosting tonight's debate. I'd also like to thank Senator Crapo and candidate David Roth for being here as well. I'm Scott Cleveland. I'm your independent conservative candidate for the United States Senate. Why am I running for this important office? Well, in my opinion, America is still great, but clearly headed in the wrong direction. And the reason is this. Our leaders, including career politicians like Mike Crapo, are failing miserably at serving the best interest of everyday average Americans, and I'm resolved to do something about that. I'm here tonight to speak the truth about why I'm the best candidate to serve the citizens of Idaho. The fact is Mike Crapo has both failed and betrayed the voters of Idaho, and he absolutely should not be elected to Congress this November. Albert Einstein said it best, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. That is exactly what the voters have been doing lately, and I'm hoping to change that with your support. Once again, I'm Scott Cleveland, your independent conservative candidate for the United States Senate. Thank you. Thank you so much. Senator Crapo. Thank you very much, and thank you to Idaho Public Television and to you, the voters of Idaho, who are taking the time to listen to and evaluate this debate. Our country is facing unprecedented threats domestically and globally. Inflation, economic decline, security at the border, personal safety, even the foundational principles of our Constitution are under attack. America is at a crossroads. I'm in the middle of this fight. My record is solid and proven 
in fighting effectively and aggressively for Idaho's principles and values. My vision for winning this fight is for Idaho and Idaho's principles to be advocated effectively in Washington. We must end runaway spending and inflation, unleash American energy, secure our southern border, and stop the invasion of fentanyl and crime, protect our Constitution and the principles and freedoms that it assures, life, liberty, speech, religious freedom, and of course the right to bear arms, among others. Protect parents' rights in our schools over curriculum decision and social politics, and yes, safety. Restore our national defense strength globally. Support our police and stop the defund the police effort and the crime wave that it is bringing with it. And protect states' rights to assure their election policies. Thank you for listening, and I ask for your vote. Thank you. Mr. Roth. Thank you to the members of the Idaho Debates Commission and Idaho Public Television for hosting, as well as Senator Crapo and Mr. Cleveland for joining me on stage today. I think that we can all agree that over the last six months, we've seen a shift in the view of these midterm elections when it comes to what the country expects as an outcome. We've seen individual rights and freedoms ripped away from large portions of our populations and a laundry list of the freedoms to yet be taken away. I've been traveling around the state and in every community I reach, I, I speak to women who are concerned about their future. As a member of the LGBTQ community, I also share fears of what may be next. As a community leader in drug, uh, drug prevention, I see firsthand the, the challenges that Idaho faces when trying to tackle our drug problems. And I'm concerned about the lack of support from the federal government. We need to do more. As a member of the Board of Directors for Habitat for Humanity, I've seen the effects of our housing crisis firsthand. And as finally, as a single father of two boys, I face many of the same challenges that nearly 50% of Idahoans face every day. I work full time and I still sometimes struggle to make enough to make ends meet. We require leadership with real world experience. We must have a Senator who understands that here in Idaho, we have real people with real problems and we require real solutions. Now it's time to stand up and ask for those solutions. And I ask for your vote this November. Thank you so much. Our first question is from Betsy Russell for Mr. Cleveland. Mr. Cleveland, you are a business owner and investor that have never held public office. You list your top issues as national security, inflation and energy independence, and quote, reckless spending. But how would you be able to fix these problems as one independent senator? Well, the framers of our country, Betsy, had that in mind, and they gave the power of the purse to the legislative branch of government. Uh, we've, we're faced with many large problems. You listed most of the major ones there. And I believe that as a United States Senator, you have to dig your heels in. You have the power of the purse, and that, and that power should be wielded. Uh, for example, right now, our southern border is being invaded on a daily basis. It is a violation of the oath of office of our members of Congress as well as our president. And that deliberate invasion can only be stopped with uh, the people that have the backbone to do it. You'll notice that every six months they want to raise the debt ceiling in this country. If I were a sitting United States Senator, I would say, I'm not talking to you about money until that border is closed to my satisfaction. Those are the, those are the examples that you have as power. And one power, the one senator from Idaho has the same amount of power as any other uh, senator in, in the country, whether it's large or small. And that's what I would do. 
I would, I would use the power of the purse to push back on the out of control spending. Uh, it's ridiculous. We're at $31 trillion in counting. Uh, that is not sustainable. And again, I would, I would use my power uh, of the purse to say no to these things that they're doing. And if I may follow up, sure. as one independent senator, one of a hundred, mm -hmm. how could digging your heels in stop anything? And if elected, would you caucus with Democrats or Republicans or neither? Uh, that's a great question. I would most likely caucus with the Republican Party. I was a lifelong Republican until two years ago. And uh, that is most likely what would happen. However, the exception to that is when the Republicans are doing something wrong and stupid, which they do on a regular basis, I would say no. There are independent people in the United States Senate. Uh, it's a short list, but you need more like-minded people. If we're going to change things in this country, Betsy, we can't keep doing the same things with good, you know, the status quo, go along to get along politics. That's what's gotten us into the mess that we're in so far. Senator Crapo, you have held public office in some capacity since 1984, yet you're not satisfied with the way things are going at the national level. You have made that clear. How can you change things more than you already have already in your political career? And why should Idahoans continue to trust you to do so? It's a very good question, and I think the way to answer that is to look back at what we've done before this administration took complete control over the political processes in Washington. Think back just to before President Biden took election and the Senate and House went totally Democrat. We had the strongest economy that we'd seen in probably all of our lifetimes. Unemployment was at record lows. Wage growth was consistently growing month after month. 6.9 million new jobs had been added. The middle class was growing to record highs for their median income. And we were protecting the strength of America to defend itself across the globe. We also had the border under not total control, but on the way to significant control to stopping its, its explosion of invasion right now from fentanyl and crime. One term later, under the administration that we now see, all of that has been unwound. On his first day, President Biden unwound the protections at the border that were protecting us and helping us to control it. We've seen a pressure for literally $9 trillion of new spending. We were able to stop $6 trillion of that, but we need control of the agenda. The solution here is to give the Republican Party and a Republican Senate the control over the agenda so that we don't continue to see Biden, Schumer, and Pelosi driving this runaway spending, driving these open borders, and causing the difficulties that we're all talking about today. Senator Crapo, do you really believe that President Biden is responsible for absolutely everything that is going wrong in this country right now? I can tell you that he's responsible for the inflation, for the destruction of our energy independence, for the open borders that we are facing, and frankly, his party is, is one that has pushed the processes that have opened our country to crime and the defund the police effort, which they are now backing away from as fast as they can, has caused us to lose a respect for law enforcement in this country. Yes, that has come under this administration. Mr. Rowe. May, may I interject for a moment? Briefly. Briefly. Senator Crapo, you're responsible for much of that inflation. You voted <coughs> on the infrastructure bill, one of only 13 people to do so, of a $1.25 trillion bill, and only 0.18% went to Idaho. 
So I, I find it a little disingenuous for you to lament the inflation that you're causing, helping to cause. Well, Mr. Cleveland, that. that was a bipartisan bill, of course. I understand that, but he voted to spend $1.25 trillion, and now he likes to lament how bad it is for the country. Senator Craig, I'll let you answer briefly, and then we need to move on. All right, let's set the record straight. First of all, that was totally offset. The new spending on infrastructure was totally offset. It was not new spending. And the bottom line here is that the infrastructure spending is not contributing to our inflation. It hasn't even paid out yet. It will pay out over the future years. And that infrastructure spending, which we were working on with President Trump when he was president because he knew that it was supply-side spending, is actually counter-inflationary spending. Republicans have consistently supported counter-inflationary supply-side infrastructure spending, and we did that spending without adding any new spending to our federal processes. Mr. Roth, while you have been a precinct committee chairman, you have never held public office. You previously ran for a seat in the state legislature. Why leap from a state-level race to a federal race? And why should voters trust you to be successful? Thank you. So it is kind of a jump to go from a state legislature race that I didn't win up to the United States Senate. But I have to tell you, in the Democratic Party in Idaho, we don't have a particularly deep bench. And so often we have to look out and see who has the best experience, who has the ability to launch the best campaign possible to, to achieve that goal. And so after speaking with, with several uh, former congressmen, uh, we made the decision that I, I was in the right place to do that, and we did that. I have real-world, on-the-ground experience working with the problems that everyday Idahoans face. Uh, we talk about the drug problem. We talk about housing. These are all areas that I have direct experience in and solutions that are working. So I think it's important that for Idahoans, they can see that we've been looking at essentially the same leadership for th over 30 years in this state, and what we're doing simply is not working. We've had a Republican supermajority for 30 years, and yet nearly half of our population is at Alice or below. So I think it objectively could be stated that what we're doing is not working and that we need to look at different policies. And we need to make sure that we're implementing those policies on the federal level as well as on the state level. So we're all pushing forward. Could you please explain what you mean by at Alice or below? Sure. ALICE stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. It's a measure put out by the United Way. They do it all across the country where they actually look at individuals in a state, they look at their income, they look at their expenses, and it measures how close they are to being able to meet sort of unexpected expenses. So really in Idaho, it varies from county to county, but on average statewide, we're just over 40% are one car repair, one blown water heater, or one medical uh, bill away from financial ruin that could affect them for years and years. This is not a new problem that's just popped up in the last year or so. It's a problem that's been continuing in Idaho for decades, and it's just getting worse. Betsy, could I just respond to that? Briefly. Uh, I would just point out, it's my understanding that Mr. Roth supports pretty much entirely the Biden-Schumer-Pelosi agenda that I've just discussed. One of the main reasons I believe we have a serious difference between each other is that I believe that we've got to return to more fiscally appropriate policies, protect our energy independence, and stop the crime at the borders. And that's a critical issue that we need to address here today. Mr. Rose, do you want to respond? Absolutely. I believe that it is important to look at what causes we have causing our inflation and causing our national debt and causing a raise uh, in our deficit. 
And I know the other day in an interview, you spoke very highly of the Trump tax cuts and all of the advantage that they've had. However, the CBO estimates that they added $1.5 trillion to the deficit. It was not offset spending. It was new deficit spending that you were just railing against um, over 10 years. So I think that we need to look at which policies we're putting out there. I agree that we need to be investing in our local communities. We need to be investing, which is another reason I'm curious how come you didn't advocate for any additional federal spending in the state of Idaho during the first appropriations bill where Simpson, uh, the omnibus spending bill at the earlier this year, um, when Simpson was able to secure large amounts of money for various parts of his congressional district, but Northern Idaho, North Idaho and Congressional District 1 received absolutely nothing. And so we need to be making those investments in our state so that we are, have a competitive, we're competitive with the surrounding states. We need to move on. We'll have plenty more time to get into all of that. The next question is from Mar Margaret Carmel. Mr. Cleveland, the country is facing record-breaking inflation. What would you do to address the issue? Well, <clears throat> inflation is at its 40-year high, as you mentioned. And why is that? Well, our federal government keeps printing money out of thin air, something like $7 trillion. Okay. Again, I, I go back to my previous answer. As a sitting United States senator, uh, while, the, while the spending begins in the House of Representatives, it still has to go through the Senate. We have to stop this reckless spending, and it's going to take 10 or 15 years before we can get our financial house back in order. So anything that's going to add to the federal deficit needs to be said no to. Right now, this current Congress and the administration are sending billions of our, our taxpayer dollars. Those are sacred dollars, and they're being sent to faraway places like Ukraine. We have no business spending money in Ukraine. Our country is rich. It is the most powerful economic engine on earth, and there is plenty of money to go around in this country, but we're aiming it at the wrong things. We're aiming at a bunch of green energy nonsense like Senator Crapo votes for, and we're not spending it on people like our veterans and our homeless people and people that are hungry, people that deserve that money. Our own United States military veterans would be a good example. Again, I go back to there's plenty of money. We just don't have the will to aim it at the right people. Can I respond to that? Please. Well, first of all, the fact is that the inflation issue, which you act, asked about, is one that is caused by the runaway spending in this administration. Before this administration took office, the inflation rate was at 1.7%, below the 2% target of our country. It is now at 8.5%, over 400, maybe 500% of what it was when this administration took office. They have done that by runaway spending that causes about, well, that has caused this dynamic, but is about somewhere between three to five trillion dollars of spending they were able to get through because they could get around the filibuster. I have voted for every, against, every single spending bill in this Congress, notwithstanding the attacks of my opponents. And in fact, I'm being attacked by my opponents for voting against some of the spending that they seem to think was supported. The bottom line here is that we've got to stop the runaway spending. We must not spend beyond our means. Senator Crapo, you're a ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee, and you said that the Inflation Reduction Act would only make the problem worse. Um, what have you voted for to address the impacts of inflation that actively helped the constituents who are struggling with the co rising cost of living right now? Well, there haven't been any bills on the Senate floor that have tried to do that because Chuck Schumer and President Biden and Nancy Pelosi have controlled the agenda. 
But the bottom line is that the Inflation Reduction Act did nothing to, to reduce inflation. In fact, Penn Wharton, which studied this and many other an analyses, have indicated that the Inflation Reduction Act literally did nothing to reduce inflation. What did it do? It put over $350 billion of new taxes on America. It supersized the IRS to get the IRS $80 billion of new spending. That's five times the annual budget of the IRS with instructions in that bill for the IRS to go out and get another 100 to $200 billion from American taxpayers so that it could be spent. And these kinds of policies are the ones that have caused the trouble. What we need to do is to stop this kind of excessive spending and to stop the increased taxation of Americans and to go back to the kind of economy that we had put into place. We just talked a bit about the, t the, the TCJA or the tax reforms that we did before this administration has tried to unwind them. Under those tax reforms, we had reduced taxes on all Americans, increased capital formation in the United States, and developed those things I talked about earlier, the strongest economy that we have seen in our lifetimes with reduced unemployment and many other things, I see my time is out, many other things that we have done to strengthen it. I would look back at that. Mr. Roth, same question as I asked Mr. Cleveland. The country is facing record-breaking inflation. What would you do to address this? So I think that we do need to look at how we can make investments in supply side. It's something that I, I, I do agree with Senator Crapo with. We need to make investments in our local businesses, our local communities. We need to um, follow through on the provisions that have been put forward. These green energy uh, proposals that are included in the Inflation Reduction Act are targeted to build American industry and move us on uh, and give advantage to American industry, which is what we should be looking at doing as we're trying to reduce inflation. We're already seeing in the latest results that inflation in August had slowed considerably. Um, and so as we start to see that inflation on a hopefully soon downward trend, we're seeing gas prices on a downward trend across the country. I think it's really time to say that these things, they're, they're a cycle. We're coming out of one of the worst pandemics in 100 years. Our country saw things that we haven't seen since my grandmother was a little girl. And we have to expect that there's going to be some pains coming out of that. And what we need to do is instead of being obstructionist to every single policy that comes through and then sit back and complain and say, hey, what we're not allowing you to do isn't working, you need to, we need to work together and actually look forward to solutions that will reduce the problem. And like I said, you can see that the agenda that's being put forward is already lifted us out of the pandemic that we've been in and is now moving us towards those lower inflation numbers. Talking about lower inflation numbers, what Mr. Roth is referring to is that the inflation rate went down from 8.5% to 8.3%, which was considered by the markets to be a disaster. The fact is, remember, the inflation rate is supposed to be at 2% or lower, and it's now consistently holding at 8.5% or higher. And the president and Mr. Roth are saying, well, we're, we're making progress because we've got it down two-tenths of a percentage point so that it's only like 450% over what it used to be. The bottom line is inflation is still raging. As we are speaking, the markets are collapsing in America because they don't see solutions to this. We're seeing gas prices surge today because OPEC has refused President Biden's 
begging to increase their production of oil because of the destruction he's done to our production of oil. We continue to see this kind of crisis in our economy because we aren't stopping these provisions, these policies, and because we aren't going back to the sensible kinds of management of our economy that we desperately need in America. Did you want to respond, Mr. Rowe? I would like to respond. We, and then so, we need to move on. Yes, I will agree. It was a small reduction in inflation, but it still is a reduction. We have to have indicators leading which direction that, you know, leading us in the direction we're going to go. Once again, I remind you, we are coming out of a tremendous mess left by the last administration and their mishandling of the pandemic. And we also have the disastrous effects of the tax, uh, the tax cut that added over $1.5 trillion to the, uh, to the deficit over 10 years and also gave what I like to call for the Republicans the cut and run strategy. Cut the taxes and run that money right out of our local economies and our country into foreign, uh, into foreign countries where you've seen companies that support my opponent up here, who uh, are shielding 99% pharmaceutical companies are shielding 99% of their profits from US taxes, even though 75% of their revenue is generated in the US. Those kinds of policies move money out of our economy, not into our economy. They don't build what we need to see here in order to help us lift out of that inflation area. We do need to move on. The next question comes from Clark Corbin. Thank you. This question is for Mr. Cleveland, and it's about abortion. When the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, the court mm -hmm. left the decision on whether to legalize or restrict abortion to the states. Mm -hmm. Idaho had trigger laws in place that severely restrict abortion, which led to a request for an injunction from the U.S. Department of Justice. And so, Mr. Cleveland, my question is for you. What is your position on abortion? Well, <clears throat> my position is clearly I'm a pro-life candidate. Uh, I do make exceptions in the case of rape incest or the life of the mother is, is in danger. The Supreme Court got this decision right. Anything that is not in the United States Constitution uh, falls back to the states uh, to be determined. Now, the, uh, sadly, our Supreme Court is not always as consistent as they could be on referring things back to the states' rights issue. But they did get it right here in Idaho. And uh, I think that uh, life begins at conception. I think we need to protect the unborn. And I know that a lot of people don't agree with that, but that's my position. And I do think that uh, every, every state in the country should be allowed to make that decision on their own. Thank you, Mr. Cleveland. I want to ask Mr. Roth, uh, same question about abortion. You have expressed uh, support for women who choose to have an abortion. I wanted to ask about your position, and if elected, how you would work with other U.S. senators who may have a differing opinion uh, than you, sir. Absolutely. So I believe that those fundamental rights, those rights that make up who we are as Americans that define us are not left up to the states. They need to be the same regardless of where we are. It is completely ridiculous that two people sitting at the moderator's table have fewer rights here than they would if they drove an hour west. That's completely ridiculous. We are the United States of America. We are one country. So who you are as a person shouldn't vary from place to place. So I absolutely support a woman's right, or an individual's right, really, to choose what they do with their own body as far as uh, reproductive health and abortion. As far as working with other senators in, in Congress, I believe that we would have the support among the Democratic caucus um, if we can just flip some more of these seats to secure that right, that individual fundamental right, back to the people of this country. And so that's what I would work towards doing. We've already had the bill introduced once. We just didn't have enough support to push it through. So, and you see 
that even though my opponents would like to say it's a state's rights issue, in 2021, in January of 2021, Senator Crapo actually co-sponsored Lindsey Graham's, a version of Lindsey Graham's current bill to actually impose that nationwide ban on abortion nationwide. So in his mind, at that time at least, it wasn't a state's issue, it was a federal issue, but now that the shoe is on the other foot, he would like us to think it's a state's issue. All right. Thank you, Mr. Roth. Uh, Senator Crapo, same topic, but I want to ask the question in a little bit uh, different way. In light of the Roe versus Wade decision, do you think Congress needs to pass national legislation on the issue of abortion or leave it up to the states as is? The short answer to your question is no, I don't believe Congress should act on this now. The reason I supported that legislation then is because that was before the Dobbs decision that made it clear that this is a state's right issue. At this point, the federal government should stay out of what is a state's rights issue and allow each individual state to make their own decisions. States' rights issues are going to come up a lot today, I expect. And the bottom line is, here's the first example. I personally also agree with Mr. Cleveland's point that my personal opinion is that abortion should only be allowed in the case of the life of the mother or rape and incest. But I most particularly agree that states should each have the right to make this decision on their own. Thank you. Next question is from Betsy Russell. Senator Crapo, you opposed the Inflation Reduction Act, which included several drug price reforms, including a significant new annual limit on out-of-pocket drug costs for people on Medicare, the new $35 cap uh, on monthly insulin costs for Medicare recipients, and more. Why have you always opposed allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices? And what do you believe should be done with regard to prescription drug price reform? Well, first of all, I opposed, you're correct, I opposed the Inflation Reduction Act because it was not an Inflation Reduction Act. It was a Tax Increased Act, Supersize the IRS Act, and Blowout Spending Act, over $500 billion of new spending. However, with regard to drug pricing, as you indicated, I have consistently opposed, yet again, another federal takeover of our health care economy, i.e. price controls, price fixing by the federal government in drug pricing. I have my own legislation that is bipartisan and broadly supported called the Lower Cost More Cures Act, which addresses the issue of the serious and real issue of drug pricing reductions that can be accomplished without having the federal government engage in price fixing. Price fixing has never worked in our economy and it won't work here. It's going to drive up the, co the, the starting costs of drugs and reduce the, in the research and development of important cures in our pharmaceutical world. What does my bill do? My bill enhances the ability of Medicare to facilitate and help the, the uh, ability to deal with drug pricing in the distri distribution of Medicaid, Medicare. It enhances the opportunities for alternatives and biosimilars that will help increase competition in the markets. It actually, for insulin, as you referenced, has a provision that extends a Trump uh, era rule that reduced the cost of insulin in Medicare to under $35. These are the kinds of solutions we need, not federal government market controls. Can I respond? Uh, Mr. I, Cleveland first and then Mr. I'd Ross. just like to point out that uh, the Inflation Reduction Act was passed despite Senator Crapo's vote against it. That's called political cover where I come from. He votes for uh, spending bills 
when they need his vote with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, but then when it's an election year and just a few months before the election, he doesn't want to be seen in a bad light, so he votes no on a bill that passes anyways. I'd just like to point that out. Mr. And I would just like to talk about, you know, constantly we hear about these price fixing schemes. And I'd like to say that what we had before was a price fixing scheme. We had the largest purchaser of prescription drugs in the world, which was required to pay the list price set by the manufacturer because they simply weren't allowed to negotiate those prices. That to me is price fixing. That led to us in the United States paying 34% higher per capita than any other country in the world for prescription drugs. So it would seem to me that at best, we were subsidizing drug development for the entire rest of the world, and at worst, we were just getting the short end of the stick because we had other countries who were willing to stand up for their constituents when our own senators were not willing to. So, Mr. Roth, what do you support doing differently? I completely support the fact that Medicare should be able to negotiate prescription drug pricing. When you are the largest purchaser of prescription drugs in the world, you should wield some power as a market. Isn't that the free market? that so many oftentimes are, cha are, are championed. I also believe that we should have that cap on insulin. I can give you a personal example. I'm a type two diabetic. I'm not insulin dependent, but my own medications up until August 1st of this year, my copay was $74 for uh, supply. I went in at the 1st of August and my copay had jumped to over $330 simply because the medication had now been approved for to treat a different type of disease and therefore demand had surged and the price went up 300 and some odd percent. I couldn't afford to make that. I had to split the prescription up and now have to go pick it up twice a week. This is happening to people all across the country and it's just wrong. Healthcare needs to be affordable. We need the support of the Affordable Care Act. We need the support of uh, insurance options and, and options to reduce those costs for Americans all across the country. Senator Crapo, I'll give you 30 seconds to respond. I'd like to respond to both. First of all, the attack that I have been voting for spending and then hiding from it is simply false. I've voted against every spending bill in this Congress that, it, that uh, and, and in previous Congresses. My record on that is solid. Uh, secondly, with regard to drug uh, price fixing, the fact is that drugs are negotiated now in the current system, but that negotiation process is not working. My bill, the Lower Cost More Cures Act, fixes that and addresses the problems we have in transparency in the negotiations so that we can get to these results without having the federal government once again take over another sector of our economy. Mr. Cleveland, what would you support to address prescription drug pricing and what do you believe is the role of the federal government on this? Well, I think when you introduce competition into a marketplace, you get two outcomes. And this is true not only of prescriptions, but our school systems. Anytime you introduce competition, you get higher quality at lower prices. That's what we should do with the pharmaceutical industry, as well as our school systems through school choice. But don't we already have competition among our pharmaceutical companies? Well, it's very limited competition. It's not true competition, much like insurance is not true competition across state lines. The next question is from Margaret Carmel. Mr. Cleveland. The PACT Act was the largest health care and benefit expansion in VA history, which expanded health care coverage for veterans exposed to toxic burn pits. Would you have voted for the PACT Act? Why or why not? Yes, I would have voted for the PACT Act. Our veterans, uh, we owe a great debt to the veterans of this country. And I understand all the dynamics of what was good with the bill and what was bad with the bill. And uh, again, you know, I hate to sound like I'm attacking the record, but our own Senator Crapo voted against that bill. 
and I heard his explanation, I've heard it more times than I care to hear it, that that bill was loaded up with a bunch of pork, $350 billion of pork. Well, he didn't mind spending $1.25 trillion of pork on green energy stuff last summer, but yet this summer, when it comes to doing the same thing, he, de he defers and, and votes against the veterans spending pork. First off, I would prefer nobody spending any money on pork, but that's not the world we live in in Washington, D.C. But if I had to choose between green energy or our United States military veterans, that would be an easy choice for me. It'd be the veterans every single time. When you say pork, what do you mean by that? The excess spending, the $350 billion for IRS agents and all of that, the tax increases. That's the example of pork. But at the same time, there were benefits directly for the veterans in that bill. And, you know, we need to support those people. These people are actually suffering injuries, and they deserve to be taken care of. It's that simple. Thank you. Senator Crapo, um, on the same topic, why did you vote against the PACT Act? A majority of your colleagues in the Senate, including those from your side of the aisle, supported the bill. There were only 14 no votes. Why were you, why were they all wrong and you were right? I voted against it for the very reasons I've been attacked by Mr. Cleveland. That is, it put $380 billion of new spending potential, a big hole, a slush fund hole, in the budget to allow the Democrats to spend another $380 billion. Chuck Schumer has been consistent on this, whether it's the PACT Act or other acts that have been pushed through. When he sees one that has Republican support, he adds a boatload of new spending to it and puts Republicans in the position of voting no on things they support or authorizing hundreds of billions of dollars of new spending. I didn't do it because that's the strategy Chuck Schumer was pushing. And I will say, as far as, rep, as veterans, in the, PACT, in the PACT Act, one of the lead pieces of it was my bill. And three or four of the other pieces of the PACT Act were legislation that I co-sponsored. The veterans in Idaho know that consistently on this issue and many others, I've been one of the strongest advocates for veterans in the United States Senate. And I've gone all over Idaho in, the last, in August and met with veterans across this state. They get it. They don't want to be used as a foil to drive up this excess spending. And I just would note that my, my opponent, Mr. Cleveland, has attacked me for voting for extra spending, and he just said he would vote for $380 billion of more spending in this bill. That has to stop in Washington. I have voted against the excess spending in Washington. Thank you. Mr. Roth, same question. Would you have voted for the PACT Act? Why or why not? I absolutely would have voted for the PACT Act. I think that it's important that we are looking out, much as Mr. Cleveland said, for those veterans. And you know, we know that in the Senate and in Congress, bills are often compromised. Not everybody gets everything that they want, and sometimes things go through that they don't want. But we can't allow those veterans to continue to wait for that much-needed critical care simply because there's something in that bill that Senator Crapo doesn't agree with. As far as spending goes, I understand that we need to control our spending and make sure that we're directing it, but these types of, of cut and run strategies or this idea that, you know, I can't vote for anything because there's excess spending in it, that's often the reason that he gave, or that is the reason he gave for not voting for the standalone insulin cap in the Inflation Reduction Act. It's because he didn't like the overall Inflation Reduction Act, so he voted against that amendment. Had he voted for that amendment, then people on private insurance today would have a $35 insulin cap on the way to them. But because he voted against the standalone amendment, which he could have done while still voting against the overall bill, we saw that uh, $35 insulin cap just go right out the window. So I think that often we need to look and we need a senator who is able to strategically look at the bills and weigh the good and the bad and realize that not every bill is going to be an ideal bill. 
but just as it was okay to add, in, in my opponent's mind, to add 1.5 trillion to the deficit to cut taxes for the wealthy, it's okay if we have to to spend 350 billion to give veterans the health care they deserve. The next question is from Clark Corbin. Thank you. Uh, this question is from Mr. Cleveland. I wanted to ask uh, about extremism, uh, the rise in extremism and divisive political rhetoric that we've seen in Idaho, across the country, mm -hmm. and across the world. Uh, recent public opinion surveys, including a 2021 survey from the Frank Church Institute at Boise State University, show that 20% of survey respondents believe that violence is justified if people don't think their government is acting in their best interest. I wanted to ask if you agree with that or whether you think as a candidate for office there's a responsibility to push back against extremism and divisiveness in politics and rhetoric today. Well, I think we live in a very polarized society, and I, I see that continuing for the foreseeable future. We just live in polarizing times. Uh, however, I don't ever condone violence, and uh, the 20% figure that you mentioned, I don't condone any sort of political violence. There's no place for that in a, in a modern society. And I think that uh, people that do break the law, uh, for whatever their pretext is or they think is a just cause, should absolutely be uh, dealt with uh, fairly and under the terms of the law. Uh, due process needs to be brought forth. And I think that uh, we, don't, we don't need that in our society. We, we're advanced enough that we can s settle our differences without resorting to any form of physical violence. Thank you. Uh, same question for, for Mr. Roth. Uh, what is your reaction to the rise in extremism uh, and, and violence in, in political discourse? And as an elected official, how do you push back against that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that we're all concerned about any time we see groups of people attacked for various reasons. I know that I, many people across this country watched in horrors. We saw what happened in Coeur d'Alene. I know we've seen sitting legislators as well as pastors and churches calling for the execution of particular groups of people in this state. And that to me is extremism. We should never, ever be asking for that. We should never be singling out a group. And I think that it starts at the top. Like I said, we have religious leaders, we have uh, state legislators. We have the, our own president, uh, former president of the United States saying a member of his own party has a death wish. And we have all of these examples of that filtering down. And some, you know, when you look at someone who was the president, who was the president of the United States, who's saying, that's OK, this is how I act, it sets a tone for everyone else. So I think it's very important that as a senator, as a statesman, we push back at every opportunity and we look at ways to protect our citizens and then beyond that I think that we need to look at how does extremism grow in the first place one of the main ways that extremism grows is because people are very unhappy here in Idaho they've been living under Republican supermajority for over 30 years nearly half of them can't afford to make ends meet they're very unhappy we need to make in investments in our communities and in our state to try to improve those situations and sort of starve out extremism so that they don't have that fertile bed for it to lie in. Thank you. Uh, Senator Crapo, same question. As a, a sitting U.S. Senator, how do you tone down the temperature? How do you push back? How do you fight this extremism and these calls for political violence that we've seen? Well, first of all, the violent extremism that you've discussed has no place in American society. It needs to be investigated and prosecuted where it, where it crosses the line. And uh, I don't disagree with my opponents on that principle. Uh, the point is well taken, though, that one of the best ways that we can deal with it is to strengthen people's lives. 
People today are frustrated at what's happening to them with the inflation. With the, when they go to the gas pump and they see that they're paying double or triple what they used to pay at the gas pump. They are frustrated at what's happening at the border with the fentanyl and all of the problems that we see with such an open border. And we need to address that. And I want to take the rest of my time in this answer to just respond in this context to an attack that Mr. Roth has made on, on me three times, saying that the tax reform that we passed in 2019 has resulted in a hundred and I can't remember how much, uh, one and a half trillion dollars or whatever the number was of deficit spending. That tax act generated more income in the Treasury and grow, grew our economy phenomenally, built us the strongest economy we've seen in probably our lifetimes, and in reduced inflation, reduced the deficit, and put us into a posture of building the incomes of individuals across the country in all income categories beyond what it was before. I'll make this last point. The growth in personal income, in medium, median income, for people across the lower and middle income categories went up. That was the one time in the recent past that we've actually seen the difference between the wealthy and those in lower income categories diminish because we were growing uh, opportunities for people across this country. Mr. Roth, I'll give you 30 seconds to respond and then we're gonna get back to this question. Oh, absolutely, okay. So the Congressional Budget Office is who came up with the <coughs> $1.5 trillion estimate for what it's gonna add to the deficit. So that's not something I just pulled out of thin air. That is the, the stated estimate that came from the Congressional Budget Office. And also, when you look at what the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act did, it did affect income taxes at all levels. However, it affected the, those at the top, the wealthiest, the most. So we're just looking to see that income gap increase over time. And so I think that that's something that we need to really look at addressing. How do we bring that back down and close that gap? The Congressional Budget Office was wrong, and it won't be the last time they were wrong. Yeah, All right, we're going to get back on track. Real quick uh, follow-up for uh, Senator Crapo. Because he has a unique perspective, you were serving in the U.S. Senate. You were, I think you were in Washington on January 6th during the Capitol riot. How would you characterize what happened that day, uh, given your unique perspective <coughs> of, of serving in office at the time? I was there that day, and, and I have stated publicly I rejected the violence that occurred at the Capitol and said that that violence should be investigated and prosecuted. And the Department of Justice, the FBI, has been doing just that. I believe over 900 people have been identified. And I don't know whether they've all been prosecuted yet, but they are being identified by the Department of Justice. That needed to happen. We should never see that happen in the United States. Thank you, Senator. Next question is from Betsy Russell for Mr. Cleveland. Mr. Cleveland, you've said publicly that you do not support the last election process what changes would you propose to secure elections if you are elected, and would you support the Bipartisan Electoral Count Act? I would not support the Electoral uh, Count Act. Uh, we do clearly need reforms. Uh, the subject of the integrity of the 2020 presidential election goes across uh, this country, and uh, the, the latest Rasmussen poll believes 52% of Americans believe that it is somewhat likely that that vote count was not counted correctly and that it would have likely affected the outcome of the presidential election. So we're not talking about a small group of tinfoil hat people here that see the election results uh, with a fair amount of question. But election integrity is not an easy is issue to solve. 
It starts with cleaning up the voter rolls. The voter rolls in Idaho are not exactly squeaky clean. I've worked with a group called Election Integrity Idaho here, which has 500 members. And we've been doing a deep dive into the election process here in Idaho. Uh, it starts with cleaning up the voter rolls. Uh, I don't like the way some of the machines work. I spent uh, about three hours with uh, Phil McCrane, the Ada County clerk. And after learning about how all the machines work and the tabulators and the software, I asked Phil McCrane to his face, uh, Phil, do you control that software and hardware as the county clerk here in the largest county, Ada County, or does someone else control it? And his answer was, Scott, I don't control that software. The people that sell the machines and sell the software control that. Until some of these things are cleared up, voters aren't going to have a high level of trust in these systems. So, Mr. Cleveland, why would you not support the Bipartisan Electoral Count Act? Well, I think it's going to change how the Electoral College is working, if I'm, if I'm not mistaking your question correctly. And what do you think is wrong with our vo voter rolls in Idaho? There are people that vote in this state, including in the last primary, that don't live in the state anymore. I went out canvassing with a friend of mine that runs this election integrity group. We went to five houses on a Sunday afternoon with people that actually voted in the May primary. And at one of the houses we stopped at, we showed them a list of who voted from that residence. There were six people that voted at that residence, and only one of the persons has lived there in the last five years. I saw it with my own eyes. So that's why I say our voter rolls is not as tight and squeaky clean as our uh, Secretary of State would like us to believe. Uh, Senator Crapo, you voted to certify the election, but right now there are people, a lot of people, as Mr. Cleveland has mentioned, who don't believe the last election was valid. The leading contender for the Republican presidential election, Donald Trump, repeatedly says it wasn't valid. Would you support a 2024 presidential candidate who denied the legal and valid election results? Well, frankly, the, the bottom line is there are allegations that there was significant fraud in the last election that was not identified and corrected. And I agree with Mr. Cleveland that that could have changed the outcome of the election. But that's not the issue here. The issue here is your first question, which is what should we do about it? I'll get back to my point about states' rights. The states should have the opportunity to do the kind of, to operate the kind of elections that the Constitution gives them authority for rather than the federal government. That includes voter ID requirements during voting. It includes supervised ballot drop boxes rather than ballot harvesting and letting people who didn't even cast a ballot be the one who put the ballot into the drop box. It includes cleaning up the voter rolls and allowing the states to basically take those who have passed away or those who have moved out of the state or others who are not citizens or who are not residents to be removed from the voter rolls. And all of those things are under attack in Washington right now. Senator, do you support the Bipartisan Electoral Count Act? I do not. That by, the, the, as I said, states have the right to control the election, and it is the states through the Electoral College that elect the president. We have a constitution, the 12th Amendment, which lays out the procedures, and we have a, an Electoral Count Act of 1887 that further lays out those procedures, and those are the procedures I believe we should follow. The Electoral Count Act is an effort to go one step further in facilitating 
con congressional engagement on vote counting and on literally the management of the Electoral College, and I do not support that. But it also makes some changes to specifically avoid what we saw on January 6th with the efforts to push the vice president to reject the results and so forth. Do you think we don't need any changes in those areas? No. The, the 12th Amendment and the 1887 Electoral Count Act deal specifically with those kinds of questions. And I would like to go further. When I talk about facilitating federal takeover of states' rights, let's look at Senate Bill Number 1, the bill that was what the Democrats wanted to pass. That was a bill which, first of all, prohibited voter ID requirements for mail-in ballots, mandated that the states uh, allow unsupervised ballot boxes, prohibited states from doing the cleanup of their lists, and many other things. Uh, and that was a federal takeover of, of what is a state's rights. I don't want to vote for any legislation that would support any step towards facilitating or legitimizing federal engagement in setting election rules. Elections are state responsibilities under the United States Constitution, and they should stay that way. Mr. Roth, as a candidate for the U.S. Senate, how would you restore trust in election results, and what is your position on the Bipartisan Electoral Count Act? So, <clears throat> excuse me. So I think that it is absolutely critical that as any elected official, when we're in an election, that we accept the results as they come out. And so win or lose, I think that the confidence starts with us at the top. Part of the reason that I think that you've seen so much widespread belief in the election allegations of 2020 is because you have several years later the former president still pushing those same theories even though he's not been able to find any amount of widespread voter fraud and certainly not for lack of trying we've seen audits in arizona we've seen audits in other states uh, mike lindell came here to idaho and audited butte county if i'm not mistaken um, uh, to make sure there was no irregularities there. So I think that it starts from the top down. We as the elected officials, we need to instill that confidence in the system, win or lose. I would support uh, the Electoral uh, Act that you described, mostly because I think it's absolutely important that we protect something from like January 6th from ever happening again. It's absolutely critical that we do not have uh, our capital overrun that process eliminated. This time it was stopped because we had people who were willing to stand firm. But if we don't have those protections in place, who knows what might happen next time. And considering that we are constantly hearing for violence in the streets, if something happens to this person or that person uh, in a political arena, I think it is safe to assume that we have those types of discourse to look forward to in the future. Uh, Mr. Cleveland, I'll give you 30 seconds to respond and then we do need to move sure. on. Well, <clears throat> I watched the uh, election live. I had a watch party at my house with about 30 of my closest friends. And I've never sat through an election where they stopped counting votes at about 10 o'clock at night in the uh, critical swing states. At a very minimum, at the least, there should have been a call for an investigation into this election, and there was never one. And I think that's an injustice and a disservice to the American people. Mr. Roth, did you want to respond to that? That there was never uh an investigation. We saw huge investigations in Arizona. We saw calls for. No, I'm talking about a federal investigation well, of the entire election. The elections, though, we when you look through them, 
the states are the ones that have to say what has happened in that aspect. Now, I realize that that seems somewhat contradictory, but the states run the actual elections. The federal government should set the guidelines. So the states are the ones that have to come in and say that their election results are correct or not. They all certified their results. And even when you had audits afterwards, none of them found any instances of widespread fraud. We do have to move on. The next question comes from Clark Corbin. Yeah, thank you so much. I want to change gears a little bit. This question is going to be for Mr. Cleveland, and it's about salmon. I wanted to ask what you think of U.S. Congressman Mike Simpson's concept plan surrounding the salmon, uh, which calls for breaching of four dams, offsetting the impacts. Uh, what, rep what Representative Simpson said is necessary to prevent uh, the extinction of these salmon. I wanted to ask for your reaction uh, to the plan and what you think should be done about the issue. Well, I think his plan is a really bad one for many reasons. Number one, those dams provide very valuable, clean hydroelectric power, uh, clean energy, at a time when we need it more than ever. I have nothing against salmon. I'm a fisherman myself. I've been up on the uh, uh, South Fork of the Boise River and had a, a salmon, a bright red salmon, swim between my legs. I love fish. And yet somehow, it's amazing, they make it from the Pacific Ocean, still up here to Redfish Lake and beyond, uh, without having breached the dams. So. I think his, uh, his idea that that is somehow going to drastically increase the, the population of the salmon here in Idaho, I think it's a mistaken belief. I, I don't think he, his heart is in the wrong place. I just think that's a bad way to go about trying to inc increase fish populations. It's a really bad idea for farmers as well. Is there any action you would take, Mr. Cleveland, regarding salmon, regarding uh, the dwindling numbers, the increased expenses that Bonneville Power uh, is paying? Is, is there any action that you think uh, that you would favor taking, or are things okay as they are right now with the salmon today? I'll be honest with you. I think things are okay as they are. It's a complex <laughs> issue. You can't start shooting all the sea lions in California that eat the things. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to ask uh, Mr. Roth the same question. Uh, your reaction to Congressman Simpson's proposal surrounding uh, the salmon, what you think of the idea, and whether you think uh, you have any proposals for addressing the issue? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it is a complex issue and there's a lot of moving pieces to it. And I'd like to think that there's more information out there available than what I've been made, what's been available to me to make those decisions. However, I do think that one thing that we are seeing is that we are seeing critical declines in the salmon population. We need to take uh, action. Just because some salmon are making it up into those lakes doesn't mean that enough salmon to sustain the population are making it up to those lakes. I also would ask you to look at some of the other dams and reservoir issues that we have in this country. We have a severe water shortage in the western United States, and it is likely that in the coming years, those hydroelectric dams may not be able to produce the current amounts of electricity that they're currently producing. And so rather than wait till the last minute to try to figure out what to do, we should be looking at ways to offset that right now. And there is plenty of different opportunities to have clean energy that would replace that electric offset. And I can guarantee the people who are dependent on Lake Powell and Lake Mead are wishing that someone would have taken those steps years ago before it was too late and they were in the situation they were in. So I do think it is possible that we can stop waiting to the last minute till we have these catastrophes. We can be proactive. We can say that in the long run, we're going to lose those dams likely anyway because of the water shortage in the West. And we need to look at other proactive solutions that will, in the long run, help the salmon as well. So I do think that we need to do something. And I would look at any and every option in order to save the salmon and replace those economic impacts that we discussed. Thanks. I wanted to turn to Senator Crapo. Uh, Senator, I believe in July you said you opposed breaching the four lower Snake River dams. I wanted to ask if you have an alternative uh, proposal uh, aside from breaching the dams or whether you are worried about 
the loss of salmon population in the Columbia River Basin? Well, first of all, no, I don't support proposals to have a congressional cramdown of dam breaching. Salmon are an icon in the Pacific Northwest, and we do need to preserve and strengthen them. And I've been engaged in this battle for years. Uh, the bottom line here is that even Senator Murray and Governor Inslee in the state of Washington evaluated this and said a congressional cramdown is not the solution for us to pursue right now. Why? Because there are multiple stakeholders and multiple interests across the Pacific Northwest who have very different positions on this issue. What we need to do is the thing I've been advocating for a decade now, and that is get the various stakeholders together and work out a compromise solution, a consensus plan that can reach the kinds of solutions we want to achieve. As you may know, I did the same kind of thing in the Owyhee Wilderness. I did the same kind of thing in different parts of Idaho with regard to our natural resource management, and we can do it. When we get people together, because people across Idaho support the salmon and many of them support the dams, there are win-win solutions that we can find where we can build the political consensus to move forward. If we just have a congressional cram down right now, whatever happens, it's not going to be permanent. There will be political opposition. There will be court battles. There will be continuous warfare over this issue until we get together and build consensus-based solutions to the issue. That's what we need to do. The next question comes from Margaret Carmel. Mr. Cleveland, would you have supported the Chips and Science Act, which offered federal assistance for microchip processing um, in the United States? Yes. We're at a disadvantage in our chip department. Uh, you've seen supply chain shortages all over the last 12 to 18 months in this country, uh, where you literally had to wait six months to get your brand new pickup, not because Ford couldn't manufacture it quick enough, but because they couldn't get the chips. Uh, we have a beautiful facility out here, uh, Micron, uh, just announced an $18 billion expansion, and uh, I would have supported that, and Senator Crapo did not support that, but yet he was gracious enough to show up for the ribbon cutting a few days ago. So to answer your question directly, I would have absolutely supported it. Thank you. Senator Crapo, I want to ask you, um, why did you vote against it? Um, you applauded the announcement, and, but, but you weren't one of the yes votes on that bill. Yeah, absolutely. I was one of those. Uh, the, there were two key pieces of the CHIPS Act. One was an investment tax credit piece of legislation, and the other was a grant program. I was the drafter. It was my bill, the, the ITC portion of that legislation. And I worked very hard to get the CHIPS provisions in that legislation moved forward. But at the end, Senator Schumer did his same thing that he did on the PACT Act and a number of other acts. He put another $200 billion of spending into the bill. The folks at Micron know that I'm a longtime supporter of theirs and that this would not have come to the forefront had I not drafted the legislation that was passed. But they also know the reasons I voted no, and that is I'm not going to support an extra $200 billion of spending because they hijack my issue. Uh, the bottom line here is this, my opponent is criticizing me for this, and yet he's also criticizing me for voting for spending programs in Washington. He can't have it both ways. This is a standard practice that Senator Schumer is following on issue after issue after issue, finding bills that have Republican support, 
piling them full of extra spending and then expecting Republicans, he's got us in a bind. We either vote against it and get this kind of questions or we vote for it and vote for another $200 billion of his spending spree. I voted against the spending spree. And by the way, if we had defeated the bill with his spending spree in it, we would have been able to get it moved forward without the spending spree and still would have gotten it passed. Mr. Cleveland, I wanted to give you a chance to respond to that before we Sounds like a lot of coulda, woulda, shoulda to me. All right, Mr. Roth. Mr. Roth, same question. Would you, would you have supported the Chips and Science Act? Absolutely. I think I've said multiple times up here, the way that we are going to rebuild our economy or continue to build our economy, the way that we're going to lift ourselves out of these inflationary pressures that we're seeing in the way that we're going to decrease the number of Idahoans who are falling in that not making ends meet category is further investment in our state. And the Chips and Science Act is a great example of that. Not to mention, it starts to put us on a level playing field with other countries such as China, which is currently one of our largest supporters, our uh, largest suppliers of chips and microchips. Uh, it puts us on a more even playing field where I feel like that's a national security issue. I once again feel that what I'm hearing from Senator Crapo is that he's unwilling to compromise no matter what the level of good is if there's anything about the bill that he doesn't like. And unfortunately, that level of, of refusing to compromise is part of why we have so much obstruction and so little getting done in Washington. So we need to look at ways to compromise, to get those investments into Idaho, to get those investments into the other states in our country as well. And honestly, the grant program that will push out into science um, and expand other ways that we can level the playing field. It seems to me that, you know, when you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, one of the things that was complained about was the fact that the credits were geared more towards uh, American companies for solar panels and solar cars, you know, and that affected China negatively. In this case, we have another instance where this bill affects China negatively, and it seems quite curious that often we have bills getting not getting the support from our sitting senator who uh, affect China negatively. The next question comes from <coughs> Betsy Russell. The overturning of Roe versus Wade has led to fears from some Americans that same-sex marriage protections accorded by Obergefell v. Hodges could also be overturned by the Supreme Court. Bipartisan legislative efforts in the Senate to codify same-sex marriage, same marriage have been delayed until after the midterms. Would you support, Senator Crapo, the federal codification of protections for same-sex marriage? Uh, I will not support the legislation that is being proposed in the Senate right now. What it does is require every single state to agree with whatever any other state decides is a marriage. And that basically, again, violates states' rights which is something that the states under our Constitution have the right to determine. Uh, I'm thinking about the potential risk here that this presents to what will happen to organizations that do believe in a traditional marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, I've got a letter from the Catholic uh, Council of Catholic Bishops saying they are very worried that their religious beliefs about what is a marriage will threaten their tax status or will threaten their activities in certain ways. We're all aware of how people in the private sector have already been threatened by the administration 
with regard to uh, bakers who don't want to particularly recognize a certain thing or others a certain type of marriage or others in the in the uh, society who want to pursue their own beliefs about this I believe we need to let again the states have the right to make these determinations rather than the federal government this is one more example I told you there would be a number of them in this debate of where the federal government is trying to step in and have a federal rule that forces all states to follow its law. We cannot do that. Well, Senator, in Idaho, we do have a const state constitutional ban on same-sex marriage, and yet same-sex marriage has been legal in Idaho since 2014. So would you roll back the clock? And if so, what happens to all those existing marriages that have been lawfully recognized in the state of Idaho since 2014? Well, you've just made my point. The state of Idaho has addressed this issue. And it is the state's right to determine this issue. And I support the state's outcome. I support the state's right. I, my point here isn't what the outcome should be. It is who is in charge. If we had a law that said that every state has to agree with and has to follow what any state sets up, then you're going to see a push around this country for rules. Think of what California may do or what New York may do or what some other state may say. And then Idaho has to follow that? No. I support Idaho's approach, which you have pointed out, does recognize same-sex marriage. And I'm fully willing, in fact, aggressively willing to protect Idaho's right to make that decision. But Idaho only legalized same-sex marriage because of a federal court decision. And so if this were only up to the states, would you support then telling all those currently married couples, same-sex married legal couples in Idaho, you're no longer married? No, I would not support that. I would support the state of Idaho making the decision about what it will recognize in this area. Mr. Roth, what is your position on this issue? Well, my position, I am a member of the LGBTQ community, and so my position on this is probably pretty obvious. I, once again, earlier in the in the debate, I talked about how when we're talking about those fundamental rights, what make us up as individuals, what make us up as Americans, those should not vary from state to state. If I am in a state that allows same-sex marriage, such as Massachusetts, for example, and I decide to take my family to the wonderful Idaho wilderness and something happens to me while I'm here, I should still be married in Idaho, even if there's a constitutional amendment against it, because my it shouldn't change no matter where we are. If I'm married in one state, I'm married in any other state. Think about what would happen if you had a state that went the opposite direction and said, you know what? We're not, if we're not gonna, if not, everyone is not going to recognize same-sex marriage, we're not gonna recognize any marriage at all. And you cross into another state with your spouse and find that all of a sudden you have a medical emergency or whatnot and you don't have those rights and protections. It goes both ways and it's absolutely terrifying to many of us in the community. And it's another instance where we're just targeting a specific group of people. And you're seeing this not only with the marriage issue, you're seeing it with the trans issue, you're seeing it with what just happened in Ohio where a mean-spirited group of students nominated a sophomore to be homecoming princess who was trans as a mean practical joke and then none of the boys in the class would stand up and be uh, would take their role as a homecoming prince it's mean-spirited and it comes right from the top we need to stop it mr. Cleveland what is your position on same-sex marriage and whether or not the federal government should codify it? thank you very much well my personal position on gay marriage and gay couples is I'm okay with the gay 
Uh, I've been around the, the workforce where I worked around uh, gay coworkers. Uh, I know personal friends that are gay, and I, I don't think that they should ever be discriminated when it comes to employment or marriage or their work life, their family life. They're good people, and there's no reason they should be treated any different. However, I will say this. While I think gay people are different, I don't think they're special. I don't think they deserve their own special month. I don't think they need a special flag. I think if we're going to reduce discrimination in America, we need to treat everybody the same, including the gay community. I don't like it when the gay agenda is pushed on children. You see some of that going on in our school systems, despite claims to the contrary. I do agree with Senator Crapo for the first time tonight. Uh, uh, the issue of gay marriage uh, should not have been decided by the United States Supreme Court. It should be left up to the states. And uh, I'll be consistent on that. If it's not in the Constitution, it goes back to the states. So then would you support here in Idaho turning back the clock and unmarrying all those couples who've been legally married in Idaho under the existing law and, and, and uh, state and U.S. Supreme Court decision since 2014? No, that would be a bad decision. And if the state made that decision, I would push for them to grandfather existing gay, gay marriage and same-sex couples. I'm not, I'm a Christian, but I'm not here to judge what people do in their own personal lives, in their own uh, bedrooms. If two consenting adults want to engage in, uh, you know, uh, a loving relationship and a marriage that goes along with that, who are we to judge? I think that's a bit ridiculous and old-fashioned. Okay. Mr. Roth, I want to give you 30 Real seconds quick. to respond. I just want to respond specifically to the, the issues about children because I think that one perspective that I can bring that many in this room can't is growing up as a member of the LGBT population. People seem to think that when you're 18 or 20, you all of a sudden decide you're gay. You have those feelings when you're a small child, and our society is not currently set up to affirm that. So yes, we have struggles and growing pains as we're trying to figure out the best ways to affirm that, but singling out groups and pre preventing them from participating in sports. There are likely more laws preventing trans people from participating in sports than there are actually trans people trying to participate in sports. Okay. The next question is from Clark Corbin. All right, uh, I'm gonna ask uh, Senator Crapo first. His question is about guns. 19 children and two adults died in Uvalde, Texas this year when an 18-year-old man came into an elementary school with a gun that he had legally purchased. In the aftermath of that tragedy, some of the family members of those victims called for raising the age to purchase an AR-15 from 18 to 21. And so my question is, what should our country do to prevent the school shootings and the other mass shootings that repeatedly happen in our country but do not happen in other developed countries at the same rate? Well, first and foremost, I do not agree that expanded and enhanced gun control is a solution. Uh, we've tried that in the past in the United States, and it hasn't had any appreciable effect on gun violence. And the fact is that there is a Second Amendment right under the Constitution to bear arms. Now, that being said, there are things that we can do and which I support, and in fact, which I am championing in the United States Senate. First, we can harden our schools. We, there are a lot of technologies and a lot of actions that can be taken to protect our schools so that the things that happened in Uvalde would not have happened if we had had the right kind of protection in place at our school, at that school. Secondly, we can recognize the cause. Not, there are multiple causes of this violence, but one of the most significant ones that everyone acknowledges is mental illness. And I'm engaged with Senator Ron Wyden, the chair of the Finance Committee, where I rank, to develop a mental illness piece of legislation that focuses beyond 
guns and beyond violence to many other aspects of mental illness, but does focus on guns and violence. If we can focus on the cause and find the ability to identify those who are potential risks and help them get assistance, we can make, make much more progress in dealing with the violence in our society, particularly this kind of gun violence that we see in schools than we can by just uh, passing something which I think is uh, a feel-good piece of legislation for those who are anti-gun. Thanks. I want to direct the question to Mr. Roth. Do you agree uh, with Senator Crapo's response or what do you think we need to do in America uh, to reduce and prevent uh, the types of school shootings that routinely occur here but do not happen in other countries at the same rate? Absolutely. So I would agree that, you know, if, I shouldn't say I would agree. I would love to see more investments in mental health because across our spectrum, that would be important. However, the shooting in Uvalde, if that person would have had to wait, they went into a gun store on their 18th birthday or the day after their 18th birthday. They bought an AR-15 and 500 rounds of ammunition. We then saw surveillance footage of the police cowering outside the classroom while you could hear gunshots and kids screaming because they were outgunned to get in there. If that person who purchased that gun at 18 would have had to wait until 21, there's a chance that that wouldn't have happened because he purchased his gun through legal means. He didn't do it before his 18th birthday. He did it on his 18th birthday when he could purchase it legally. So I think that it is safe to say that we could have seen a different outcome had that happened. We need to do something. And we had an assault weapons ban that targeted many of these specific weapons um, during the Clinton administration. And I, we did see a decrease in deaths and gun violence related to those assault weapons. And I think that that is something we need to seriously look at again, because to simply not do anything and say, well, if we make our schools look more like fortresses, then we can solve the problem. And that's not really going to solve the problem because we have a fundamental problem in our country with gun violence and access to guns for, and we need to address those issues. Otherwise, we'll just see the gun violence switch from schools to grocery stores or to churches, funerals, places of worship, movie theaters, country western concerts, you name it. We need to take action and we need to do it quickly. Thank you. I wanted to bring Mr. Cleveland in. I wanted to get your reaction uh, to the calls from some family members of victims to raise the age to purchase an AR-15. Uh, and I also wanted to get your thoughts uh, uh, sure. on the school shootings uh, epidemic that we have in our country. Well, I'm a big fan of the Second Amendment. It's a very important part of our constitutional rights. And those rights are given to us by God, not by the federal government or the state. And it's the right to self-protect oneself. And that should never change. You're not gonna legislate away evil from society. Uh, many of these young people that are out shooting up schools and other places uh, have a, a, uh, a pattern of being on uh, uh, special medicines, uh, psychanthropic drugs, I think it's called. And uh, it's a definitely a mental health issue. No sane person would go shoot up a school full of children. Uh, so I think that's part of the solution. I think the second part of the solution is let's harden the schools. If, if life is so valuable that you got to go through seven layers of security to get into an airport just to go across the country, why don't you have several levels of security to protect the, the most valuable resource, which is our youth, our children? That's a, that's a very doable solution. And if it takes a little bit of money to do it, then let's spend the money there. I don't think you should be taking away the rights of law-abiding citizens and, and people that don't have these mental health issues and make their lives harder uh, just because of some of what's happened. Uh, and Uvalde is just one example of many. 
But I wanted to follow up real quick, Mr. Sure. Cleveland. Why do we see this so often in America compared to other countries? And I'll um, ask you to keep that short because we're running yeah, out of time. That's an easy one. Most, <coughs> most countries don't have the guns that we do in America. It's just a, a numbers issue. Okay. The next question comes from Margaret Carmel. We have time for one, maybe two more questions. So keep that in mind while you're answering. Great. Mr. Cleveland, the, house, the Idaho Housing and Finance Association's 2021 State of Homelessness Report found that over 8,000 Idahoans sought help for to address homelessness mm -hmm. last year. What do you think the federal government should do to respond to the growing need for affordable housing in Idaho, if anything? Well, the issue of homeless is, again, a complex issue. And uh, the poor will, it says in the Bible, the poor will all, always be amongst us, no matter what we do. Uh, there are several social safety nets for people, but I don't think the federal government is the answer to everything. I think the answer lies in some sort of a balance between places like the Boise Rescue Mission, which is building affordable housing for homeless people here in the Valley. And, you know, you have Medicare, uh, you have Medicaid. Uh, but certainly there is a big difference between what goes on here in Boise in the Treasure Valley area. We actually do a very good job here in the Valley compared to many other states. My wife and I are uh, originally from New Mexico. We visited there about a month ago. And the city of Albuquerque, sadly not to bag on my hometown, uh, is like a third world country now. It looks like an episode of The Walking Dead. And part of that has to do with not securing the border. There's fentanyl, uh, they've legalized marijuana there. And I would hate to see our, our area go down that path. I think, I wanna ask you about your uh, mention of Boise Rescue Mission. You uh -huh. said that they're building affordable housing. Mm -hmm. That's a homeless shelter that's meant to be temporary, and people right. cannot stay there long-term unless sure. um, they adopt the Christian faith. Right. I, I would say that that doesn't qualify as housing. I don't think it's the federal government's job to build houses for people. Thank you. Senator Crapo, um, same question. What do you think the federal government's role <coughs> is in addressing the affordable housing crisis in this country? Well, first of all, we do have an affordable housing crisis. It is significant, and it is a tremendous problem in America. I've been involved in this fight for years in Congress, and I've been an advocate for the low-income housing tax credit, and we need to expand and strengthen that act so that it can help to further facilitate the incentivizing capital to come into the construction of affordable housing. And I'm working on an endeavor right now with my colleagues on both sides of the aisle to do just that. We need to get more capital committed in the United States to construction of affordable housing. And that's exactly what that affordable housing has got a wonderful record, that, that tax credit has a wonderful record of doing. I think that's one of the most critical things that we can do at this point. Thank you. Mr. Roth, same question. Thoughts on uh, addressing affordable housing? Absolutely. So I spend a lot of time working with this issue. I sit on the board for Habitat for Humanity in Idaho Falls. And I think that what you're going to see to really tackle this problem is more partnerships between our government, our local communities, and private businesses as we come together to build projects and looking outside of the traditional box of how we might address this issue. Single family homes in this state are not going to come down in price enough to become affordable with the wages that we have. So we're gonna have to look at two things. One, investing in more housing stock, and two, looking at ways to raise those wages 
by investing and incentivizing more companies to come into our areas. I look at organizations where we have, we use tax credits to incentivize businesses to come into our areas that will pay a wage that is not sufficient to afford even modest housing. And that to me is just complicating and compounding the problem. And we need to look at the tax incentives that we're using to drive those companies into our areas that are going to then attract workers who need housing that don't get paid enough to have that housing. It seems to me like that's a huge mismatch. So we need to have more. Uh, a really good example I could think of, I bought my first house with the $8,000 homebuyer credit that came out in 2008, 2009. That actually made a huge difference for myself and over a million other Americans who purchased their first homes. I think we need to look outside the box and look at ways that we can incentivize, and talk about incentivize, that we can incentivize our citizens to achieve those goals and get them done the way they need to be done. We are almost out of time, but I do want to toss one more question to you. You'll have 30 seconds to answer. Mr. Cleveland, the filibuster has become a way for the Senate to delay or block legislation from moving forward. Should that filibuster still be an option for senators to use? Yes, it should. <clears throat> it's been a part of our country since its founding. That and the uh, idea of cloture go hand in hand. And I don't think the filibuster should be eliminated in any way. Senator Crapo. Absolutely, it should. This Congress, Senator Schumer, tried to get rid of the filibuster and fortunately failed. Had he not failed, the bills they were going to drive through were lined up. One, a federal takeover of our elections. Two, statehood for the District of Columbia. Three, five new Supreme Court justices for this president to appoint. Four, more gun control. I mean, the list goes on. We must keep the filibuster in place. Mr. Rowe. I would absolutely support removing or reforming the filibuster. It seems to me that it has been the stumbling block for any type of progress uh, in our, in our Congress for years. And I firmly believe that if it was in the way of Mr. McConnell, if when he was in charge of the Senate, he'd have no hesitation to get it out of his way in order to push through his agenda. I feel that the filibuster allows, because of the exemption on judicial nominees and the ability to cut taxes through budget reconciliation, means that the Republicans are just fine with keeping in place because they can still do the only two things that they really care about doing. All right. Thank you so much. It is now time for 60-second closing statements. Mr. Cleveland, we'll start with you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> well, we've heard to, uh, tonight a lot of, uh, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda've. Uh, and in conclusion, I'd like to speak directly to the traditional Republican voters here in Idaho. I'm fully aware that you may not be entirely comfortable voting for a candidate like me that doesn't have an R beside their name. I get it. I really do. Okay. But if we're going to do something different in this country, if we don't do something different, we're going to keep getting the results, the same exact results from Washington, D.C. that we've been getting. And I have them on a note. It's debt and dysfunction. That's all we seem to get from Washington, and America deserves better than that. Personally, I think it's high time that we as voters start putting our country before our party. If you agree with me, then please vote for me. I'm Scott Cleveland, your independent conservative candidate for the United States Senate. Thank you, good night, and God bless America. <coughs> Thank you. Senator Crapo. Thank you. At the beginning of this debate, I laid out my vision of what we need to do to restore America's strength. And I said that I would advocate for these solutions based on the values and principles held by Idahoans. My record is proven. The American Conservative Union, 91% lifetime record, award for conservative excellence. Freedom Works, 100%. Citizens Against Government Waste, Taxpayer Hero, 90% rating. 
National Federation of Independent Businesses, Guardian of Small Business, 91%. Family Research Council, 96%. True Blue Award. NRA, A plus rating. National Shooting Sports Foundation, A plus rating. National Right to Life, 100%. These ratings matter because these organizations represent the values and principles held by Idahoans, which we know should be used to govern. My record is solid, and I ask to, for your support to continue to aggressively and effectively advocate for them in the United States Senate. Thank you, I ask for your vote. Thank you. Mr. Roth. Thank you, and once again, thank you to Idaho Public Television and the debate moderator uh, and the panelists for, for being with us here tonight. I think that this election, we're seeing a tremendous difference than we've seen in a lot of years. We've seen people who are sick and tired of looking at their fundamental rights being stripped away or the possibility thereof. We're seeing rec record numbers of women and young people in this state registering to vote, that they're standing up and saying that the values that my opponent just described are not necessarily the values that represent them, and they're looking for something different. I think that as we look forward to what we can do moving in our country, we need to look at investing in our own country and investing in our own states and bringing that money back in, not cut and run that money right out of our local economies, right out of our country to foreign governments and multinationals. Uh, we need to make sure that we're focused on doing what we need to do in order to build those investments here in the state of Idaho, which is what I will do. I've been a working person in the state of Idaho. I have the support of the AFL-CIO. I have the support of the uh, Idaho abortion rights. I have the support to bring this forward and I will stand with Idaho. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to candidates, Scott Cleveland, Senator Mike Crapo and David Roth for joining us today. Thank you to the reporters for the great questions and our viewers at home for watching. The general election is November 8th. If you haven't already, you can register to vote at the polls. For more information, go to voteidaho.gov. And remember, we have more debates coming up this month. On October 24th, tune in for the Superintendent of Public Instruction debate. And October 28th, Lieutenant Governor. And remember, if you've missed any of our debates, you can watch them again at idahoptv.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you at the polls. The Idaho Debates is organized by these partners. Funding provided by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, the Idaho Public Television Endowment, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.